We're all in process, becoming something. Like a potter throwing clay or an artist mixing color, our lives are being formed. Different backgrounds and experiences blemished and cracked. Each day, an opportunity to move into or out of all that God has purposed. So the question isn't if we are becoming, but rather who are we becoming? And in this family, we want to go on the journey of becoming like Jesus. I'm curious, I'm curious if you've ever overheard or found yourself in a conversation that went something like this. Are you gonna go to her house for that family get together next week? Well, I was until I found out she was gonna be there. I just think my presence would communicate that I agree with her new lifestyle and I don't. So I don't think I can go, but I'm praying for her and the whole family for sure. Variations of these kinds of conversations are so real right now. On the one hand, they reflect a genuine concern for how our presence reflects the truth of God and a commitment to stand firm in the scriptures, which is good. We need to have these conversations and we need to think critically about how our presence impacts things and how our choices impact situations. But on the other hand, when that concern leads to the conclusion that we should distance ourselves from people because we disagree with their choices and we do not approve of their lifestyle, I wonder, I wonder if we end up pointing people further away from Jesus instead of pointing them towards him. In a recent study that Barna conducted, they interviewed 16 to 29 year olds about the most common perceptions of Christians. 87% said that present day Christianity is judgmental. 85% said that it's hypocritical. A common theme that emerged from those that they interviewed was this quote, Christianity in today's society no longer looks like Jesus. Now, some of us hear these stats and we interpret them as like an indication of health or perhaps living proof of our commitment to the controversial way of Jesus that does in fact run against the grain of our culture's values. So we write it off and we in a sense pat ourselves on the back and think, well, Jesus did warn us. He did warn us that we would in fact be hated because of him. But this morning's texts it invites us to look at our responses and lean into the criticism with curiosity, asking ourselves this really important question. Are we being criticized for following the narrow way of Jesus? Or are we being criticized because we're actually living contrary to the character of Jesus? Maybe you already feel uncomfortable, offended, it's okay, I do too a little bit. <laughs> You're not alone. This text all week, all the last few weeks that I've been sitting with it and praying into it has been confronting me quite a lot. In fact, I've even had to have some really important conversations with people I love because of it. But here's the good news. I am so convinced that if you and I are willing, if we're willing to lay down our defenses, and simultaneously, as we open up the scriptures, we open up our hearts to the leading of the Holy Spirit. I so believe that he desires to deepen our capacity to both receive his love 
so that we can go out of this place and be a clearer, more compelling picture of what it means to walk in the transforming power of God's love and grace. That's what I believe to be on offer this morning. So I hope that you're ready and you're willing to lean in. Yes, maybe some of you? Okay, well, let's prepare our hearts as we open up the scriptures. At Jesus, we just acknowledge your presence here in the room right now. Let me just say that we, we want to be led by you. I pray that this morning we would experience a newfound bravery and boldness to stay committed to your way even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's inconvenient. Would you lead us, Jesus? Would your word come alive in our lives? We love you. And all God's people said, amen. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. We're gonna be in Luke chapter 19 this morning. And as you're getting there, why don't you go ahead and stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Luke 19. Says this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed up a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. One of the key themes that Luke's been developing in his eyewitness account of Jesus is the upside down nature of God's kingdom, especially when it comes to the kinds of people Jesus keeps company with, the kinds of people he goes out of his way to make a way for them to enter into his kingdom. Over and over again, story after story, meal after meal, Luke is bringing Jesus's mission to seek and save the lost into greater focus. A mission that moved Jesus to prioritize and pursue the kinds of people that the world and the religious establishment excluded, disqualified, and distanced themselves from. The despised and rejected, the marginalized and the misfits, those considered unclean and therefore unworthy to enter the kingdom. These are the ones that are drawn to Jesus and that Jesus intentionally chooses to chase after and draw near to. For example, just last week, Molly led us through Luke 18, where we saw how children were viewed as subhuman because of their inability to contribute to society in a meaningful way and how they were rebuked for being brought to Jesus. 
But Jesus, he says, no, let the children come to me. And oh, by the way, only those who come to me like children who are dependent and aware of their need, they will be the ones to enter into my kingdom. In chapter 18 alone, the the chapter just before the text that we just read, there are three more examples of how Jesus is actively uprooting our wrong ideas about who gets to be a part of God's kingdom and how they get to be a part of it by making it available to anyone and everyone who responds in humility, faith, and repentance regardless of their past life, their social status, or their ethnicity. And it's this theme, this theme of God's upside down kingdom that gets extended to the least likely of people that comes to a climax in Jesus's interaction with Zacchaeus. The detail about what Zacchaeus does for a living drops us right into the tension of the story. Zacchaeus is not only a tax collector, he is the chief tax collector, which meant that he had a whole network of tax collectors that he was overseeing. His high ranking position as it does, making him only more complicit in the corrupt tax system of the Roman government, which is just another way of saying he is the worst of the worst. Zacchaeus was Jewish and his name literally and ironically means pure or righteous one. But by abandoning his religious roots to work for the Romans, he had become the most unrighteous man his family could have imagined bringing so much shame to his family. As a tax collector, Zacchaeus built his wealth by exploiting and profiting off the taxation of his own people. He was seen as a sellout. He was treated like a traitor because he was one. He was working for the enemy that was actively oppressing his people. His line of work made him unclean and as such, he was not allowed to go to synagogue and was not accepted in the religious community at all. Another detail about Zacchaeus that Luke mentions but that we often miss is that he wanted to see who Jesus was. The text doesn't say that he wanted to see what Jesus looked like. It says he wanted to see who he was, which suggests that there was some kind of quality of Jesus, something about his character, his nature, or his power that Zacchaeus wanted to catch a glimpse of. And he was so desperate to see it that he was determined to eliminate any of the obstacles that were quite literally standing in his way, which makes me curious. Why was he this powerful, wealthy person willing to climb a tree and risk being ridiculed by others who would have no doubt seen him doing this? Why why was he who had everything? And if he didn't have something, he could have used his wealth or his rank to get what he wanted. Why was he willing to climb a tree just to catch a glimpse of Jesus? What was he looking for? What did he want? makes me wonder if there was a deeper longing, like something that material wealth couldn't quite cure that motivated his desperate attempt to get a good look at Jesus, a dissatisfaction somewhere deep in his soul that he thought perhaps this Jesus might be able to satisfy. In the story just before this one, we meet a blind beggar 
He hears that Jesus is about to pass by the side of the road that he's sitting on. And in his desperation to see, he cries out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus sees the blind man. He sees his faith and restores his sight. And I would suggest that Zacchaeus is a lot like that blind beggar. He's blind too, just in a different way. He's materially wealthy, but spiritually bankrupt and blind. But just like the blind beggar, when he hears that Jesus is about to pass by, his desire to see compels him to move in close. Notice what happens next. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Staying at Zacchaeus's house implies that they would share a meal together. And this is what brings the tension to a boil in this story. Meals meant something more in that society than they do in ours. According to New Testament scholar James Dunn, table fellowship functioned as a social boundary indicating both who was inside the boundary and who was outside. So to share a table with another person was to make a very clear social statement about yourself and about your guest. Jewish purity laws laid out the specifics in great detail around what food you were allowed to eat and the kinds of people that you were allowed to eat with, which was based on a person's religious status, economic status, gender, and whether or not a person had any physical disabilities. Zacchaeus was an outsider. He was the outsider. Remember, he's a traitor. In the first century Jewish society, prostitutes and tax collectors were the two lowest rungs on the moral ladder. And who does Jesus eat with regularly? Tax collectors and prostitutes. And in choosing to share a table with them, Jesus Meal after meal is redrawing the boundary lines and including all the wrong people. In choosing to share a table with him, he's redrawing the boundary lines. We don't have tax collectors anymore and the IRS function very differently so they don't count. But every society, every, I'm terrified of the IRS. It's like a hidden fear. I still work through every tax season, God help me. Anyway. But every society has a moral ladder. So what would it look like to take what's happening here in the text and translate it into our society? Who is at the bottom of our moral ladder? How would you feel if Jesus came on the scene and you heard a story of him having lunch with a pedophile or dinner with a white supremacist? or was having coffee down the street at Lionheart with a drug dealer, how would that make you feel? What comes up for you even now when you think about that? Fear, confusion? That's exactly how people would have experienced Jesus's hospitality towards Zacchaeus in that culture. You can hear it, even feel it in the crowd's response. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the crowd's response in the message. Everyone who saw the incident was indignant and they grumped, what business does he have getting cozy with this crook? 
Zacchaeus is the least likely person you would expect Jesus to choose as his host. To stay in his home was to be considered a partner in crime. Don't lose sight of that. It's a big deal. It was a disruption to the status quo, a dangerous threat to their entire way of relating to God and one another. This is the scandalous grace of Jesus. It's scandalous. Jesus didn't see sharing a meal as a boundary marker to keep people out. He saw it as a sign of God's great welcome that invited people in. His subversive hospitality was the overflow and the outworking of his mission to seek and to save the lost. And here's what I don't want us to miss. Although we live in a totally different cultural moment from when Luke documented this interaction, a very similar mentality towards sinners, people who outrightly reject the way of Jesus is still rearing its ugly head in our day in our church, in all of our well-intended but misguided efforts to take a stand for what is right, we have fallen prey to the same misunderstanding as the murmuring crowd. This misunderstanding that spending time in someone's home or inviting them into yours and sharing a meal with them is to condone their lifestyle. So rather than our commitment to the radical love and hospitality of Jesus causing us to move in close to those who make us uncomfortable, to those who have maybe taken something from us, who disagree with us and our vision and our values for life, we distance ourselves in the name of Jesus and genuinely think that what we're doing is right. This is what I believe to be one of the main causes of the increased criticism towards Christians that that Barna research brings to our attention. But friends, by sharing a meal with Zacchaeus, Jesus outrightly opposes, rejects, and subverts this way of thinking and behaving. And he shows us, he demonstrates for us that there is power in proximity. Unlike the Pharisees, Jesus didn't require people to change before coming to him. He sought them out. He met them where they were and he made a way for them to enter into reconciliation. Remember Jesus's words earlier in the book of Luke when he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he was willing to move in close, so close that people confused him for being the glut and the drunkard. That's how close he got. Jesus shows us the power of the gospel to heal, transform, and redeem, and how it requires us to move into closer proximity to those who need it most. There is power in proximity. That's exactly what he did for you and I, right? Do you know that? Have we forgotten, have we lost sight of just how scandalous his love and grace is towards us? 
This is the good news of the gospel that he and all of his unconditional love moved in close to us while we were still stuck in our sin and our shame. And he made a way for us to be set free before we ever wanted him, before we ever even knew that we needed him. He moved in close. He removed the dividing wall of hostility. And now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been made close by the blood of Christ. And he is looking, friends. Jesus is actively looking for people who will partner with him. People who will move into closer proximity to the marginalized, to the sick, to the outcast, because he longs. He longs to do that very same work of redemption in their lives through us. And our judgment is not gonna bring anyone closer to Jesus. This story is a litmus test for our lives. When I, when I look, when you look around your neighborhood, your school, your gym, the grocery store, wherever it is that you spend a lot of time, we have to ask ourselves the question, would they feel welcome knocking on our door? Would I be willing to knock on theirs? Because here's the thing, becoming like Jesus, that's the series that we're in. That's what we're going after. How do we become like Jesus? Becoming like Jesus requires response. Requires response. And there are two ways of responding to Jesus that we learn from the crowd and I think are still really tempted to get stuck in, myself included. The first is spectate. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. The first response is to spectate. And don't get me wrong, Jesus' very first invitation to the disciples is to come and see. It's okay to come and see, but if this is where we're content to stay, we fail to realize that what we see is meant to change how we see and therefore how we respond. When Jordan and I started dating, all of a sudden he started to see the ground differently. It wasn't because he realized that the ground I walk on is holy. <laughs> it wasn't because of that. It's because of my disability, I walk much slower. Any of you who have tried to walk beside me down the hall, you know this. I walk slow. And uh, getting around the city, different places, requires a good bit of creativity. And so before dating me, he didn't notice the subtle inclines the uneven pathways. He didn't think twice about a set of stairs going into a person's house. But just after a couple weeks of hanging out with me, he started to see it. And pretty soon, he just knew when I'd need a hand. He knew when I'd need a push or a piggyback. Now I don't even have to say anything. He just knows. He sees differently. And that seeing changes how he responds to me, how he partners with me to overcome the things that I can't do by myself. Being a part of the crowd that got to witness the teachings and the miracles of Jesus had to be like so fun. It had, had to be that close to the action must have felt like you were a part of something incredible. But here's the thing, association isn't the same as participation. It's not. If, ever, if all we ever do is spectate, we end up chasing entertainment over encounter and life so quickly becomes more about what we can get instead of what we can give. Coming to church every week is so good. It's important. This 
And what happens in this place, it matters, it's significant. But if nothing is changing about your life, when you walk out of these doors, you might be stuck in spectating. The second response we see from the crowd that we easily get stuck in, myself included, like very much so, this is a response that I am actively depending and asking the Holy Spirit to help me move out of. So just know, like, I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to me too. The second response is commentate. Maybe you're someone who loves to go to all the things. You go to Bible studies, you show up to community, you wake up early to pray, you go to conferences, you read books about Jesus and spiritual formation. You love to have deep conversations about what God is doing in your life and in your church and you're actively trying to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life and you watch The Chosen like twice a week. I don't know. These are good things, they're important things. But when this is where we are content to stay and we don't move toward the outcast or we don't act in any concern for the lost and commentating has gotten in the way of actually participating in the mission of Jesus. This response, it puts the emphasis on agreeing instead of acting. We get more concerned about being surrounded with people who sound like us, who agree with us. And as a result, we tend to get stuck in conversations about the mission of Jesus over participation in the actual mission of Jesus. I think that something that I feel convicted of that I'm learning is that one of the distinguishing factors between the one who is being made righteous versus the one who appears righteous is their proximity to the marginalized. Spectate, commentate, and then surprisingly, it's Zacchaeus, the one everyone would have written off and looked to last that shows us the kind of response that Jesus is really looking for. Jesus is looking for people who will participate. When Zacchaeus comes face to face with Jesus, He can't help but respond. He immediately, without delay, comes down from the tree and it says he welcomed him gladly. Jesus meets Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus receives Jesus. And right after he receives him, he can't help but respond by repenting and making restitution. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I have cheated anybody, which he would have, I will pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus's repentance, it's not just a transaction of the heart, it bears fruit. It moves its way out of his heart and into action. Notice how the emphasis of his submission to Jesus as his Lord is not primarily through words that he speaks, but through his actions. To which Jesus says, salvation, restored relationship with God, salvation has come. And here's what's interesting to me. Although the story starts out with Zacchaeus seeking Jesus, it turns out that in reality, Jesus is the one seeking out Zacchaeus. So how do we move? How do we move out of spectating and commentating and into participating? 
As we land the plane, I want to point out just three observations from Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus that I think gives us a place to start, a model for participating in Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost. Number one is notice. Jesus notices Zacchaeus. He stopped and he looked up. He was interruptible. Jericho wasn't Jesus's final destination was. Jerusalem was. But he was willing to slow down, to stop, and to take time to notice Zacchaeus. Who do you need to notice? Who is the person that you pass as you walk down the hallway at your office or as you walk around your neighborhood, someone that maybe you see regularly that Jesus might just be inviting you to slow down long enough to notice. The second is name. Jesus calls Zacchaeus by his name. Knowing a person's name, it matters. It's a way to communicate the felt experience of being known. I'm so bad with names. I'm actively trying to get better about remembering people's names. My pastor growing up was incredible at this. And he was the pastor of a 30,000 person church. And he had a habit, this is wild, he had a habit of opening up the church directory of all the thousands of people whose picture was right there and their name next to it. And he would just go line by line and try to memorize their names. And every Sunday after the gathering, he'd stand in the hallway and I would just watch him. Lisa, how are you? How's your daughter? I'd walk past thinking, surely he doesn't know who I am. Shelby, how have you been? He called me after I was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy by name and out of concern, took the time to notice, to name me and reach out to me. Dang. Knowing a person's name, it matters. And, and Jesus with Zacchaeus, he even deepens the experience of his name by making sure everyone knows that he's a son of Abraham. Since Zacchaeus was so hated by his fellow Jews, it would be common for him to be made to feel that he wasn't a real Jew. They probably would have even said that to his face. But Jesus calls out and affirms his true identity and he makes sure that everyone can hear it. He's restoring Zacchaeus, not just spiritually, but socially by calling him a son of Abraham, saying that both by genetics and by faith, he belongs to me because he has joyfully received me. Number three, known. By wanting to stay with Zacchaeus and have a meal with him, Jesus is creating an atmosphere. He's creating an atmosphere of non-judgmental, unconditional love that allows Zacchaeus to be truly and fully known. What would it look like for us to do that? To think about the dinner table or the table that you share with someone as you're getting coffee with them or whatever it is for you. What would it look like for us to intentionally call ourselves to awareness that the spirit of God is with us, that he loves us, and that that love is an unconditional love. To create an atmosphere where you so see someone through the eyes of Jesus, where the, the deep parts of maybe their shame 
or the stuff they feel like they can't talk about is able to come to the surface. And that in that, the spirit of the living God might be able to breathe on and bring about renewal and revival and refreshment and restoration. So who in your life might Jesus be inviting you to notice, to name, and to make known? I was thinking about this after the first gathering, like how can we actually step into this? And to be honest, one way for me that I'm actively trying to lean into this and notice what my defenses are and how they're keeping me from entering into and practicing the radical hospitality of Jesus is to pay attention to my judgment. Who am I most judgmental over? Am I willing to, to move in close to that person, to notice them, to ask Jesus to give me his eyes to love and to see them through, to dignify them, to honor them by naming them, to create an atmosphere of non-judgmental love and grace. I need Jesus to soften my judgment because I wanna see like him and I don't wanna miss it. I want to participate. I'm aware of all of my tendencies to stay stuck and to stay comfortable in being a spectator or a commentator. But Jesus is calling us. He is awakening us to what I believe a holy discontentment with those responses. And I just wonder who might we find ourselves in these empty seats if we allow that discontentment to rise up within us, that holy discontentment that says, I'm not gonna just sit in the seat of a spectator. I'm not just gonna stay in the comfort of being a commentator. I will be a participant. I will partner with Jesus. What would that look like? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at thejesuschurch.org.